So today we're talking about Gideon, <coughs> and I've titled this, uh, this I've subtitled this, and a heart above God's. Do you know what that's a contrast with? A heart after God. That's right. And who had a heart after God? That's right. So Gideon's very different from David. <laughs> so in 1998, the famous German car company Daimler-Benz, now called Mercedes-Benz, merged with the famous American car company Chrysler, which was Chrysler Corporation. It's not even called Chrysler Auto or Chrysler Cars. Uh, this always seemed like a strange match to those of you who know cars, due to the complete misalignment of the two companies' cultures and the cars that they created as a result. Daimler-Benz was conservative, methodog- methodical, hierarchically structured company, like most German companies, whereas Chrysler was typically American. It was creative, loose, like the cars, uh, flat structured company. <laughs> One of my friends, when we were in America, bought, made the mistake of buying a Chrysler. And, yeah. It was innovative, but it was also falling to pieces within about six months. Within 10 years, so it lasted longer than a Chrysler, the companies had gone their, second, their separate ways. You see, without cultural alignment, without the deep sharing of fundamental values and goals, we cannot work side by side with others, even if billions of dollars are at stake. And in this case, they were. This was the biggest corporate merger in history at the time, and it's still one of the biggest. So this this need for alignment is true of friendship, of marriage, business, Uh, churches, of course, and naturally, nation building. So let's hope that we have some of it in our parliament for the next few years. But we'll see. In the longest account in the book of Judges, the story of Gideon and his children, we discover how disastrously this sort of misalignment plays out for the whole nation. Because this story is so long, we won't be reading the whole account from the Bible. We'll only look at the important bits, okay? So I'm going to pick the eyes out of it. Now, Gideon was a member of uh, the tribe of Manasseh, who lived at a time, that's Gideon there, from Ophrah, not Ophrah. Um, He lived at a time when the Midianites had descended on Israel like a plague of locusts. The Midianites were nomads, so they didn't conquer Israel in the traditional sense. In fact, Judges says they rode in on their camels, like cowboys on camels, set up their tents, and then let their livestock eat the crops as far as the town of Gaza. The Midianites stole food, sheep, cattle, and donkeys. Like a swarm of locusts, they could not be counted, and they ruined the land wherever they went. Sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? As, a, as somebody who grew up on a farm, that sounds awful. Um, the angel of God approached Gideon, and he was from the north, which is where the Midianites were, were swarming, who was, and Gideon was trying to thresh wheat while hidden in a wine press. This is what a wine press looked like back then. 
So he was in one of the, probably in the big cavity there. And it's not the most comfortable activities, right? Threshing wheat, chaff going everywhere, dust everywhere, but it constrained in this, this hole in the ground. And he's doing that to try to, well, what do you think he's doing? Gideon's doubting response to the angel's greeting showed why he was hiding. The angel said, G'day, basically. And Gideon answered, please don't take this wrong, but if the Lord is helping us, then why have all these awful things happened? We've heard how the Lord performed miracles and rescued our ancestors from Egypt, but those things happened long ago. Now the Lord has abandoned us to the Midianites. Oops. Um, yeah. So that's what Gideon said to the angel. So he clearly thought that God wasn't there and he had to hide from the Midianites. The angel, in contrast, encouraged Gideon with a miraculous immolation of an offering. Gideon brought some stuff out and the angel made it magically burn up. And Gideon managed to gather up enough courage to carry out God's first request, which was to tear down his family's altar to Baal. He snuck out that night and tore that altar down. With that accomplished, the Holy Spirit clothed Gideon, the Bible says, and he called together the armies of northern Israel. But then, after the armies had come together, at the last moment it seems, Gideon had doubts. And this is a very famous story. So let's read that story from the Bible. Gideon prayed to God, I know that you promised to help me rescue Israel, but I need proof. Tonight, I'll put some wool on the stone floor of that threshing place over there. If you really will help me rescue Israel, then tomorrow morning, let there be dew on the wool, but let the stone floor be dry. And that's just what happened. Early the next morning, Gideon got up and checked the wool. He squeezed out enough water to fill a bowl. But Gideon prayed to God again. Don't be angry at me, Gideon said. Let me try this just one more time. So I'll be really sure you'll help me. Only this time, let the wool be dry and the stone floor be wet with dew. How's he going to squeeze out the stone floor? I don't know. That night, God made the stone floor wet with dew, but he kept the wool dry. God was patient with Gideon. And, and finally, encouraged by God's evident power, Gideon allowed God to use him. God whittled down Gideon's men. Remember that all of northern Israel had come out to be with Gideon. God whittled down those tens of thousands of men to 300 and implemented a plan of attack that prevented Israel from claiming any part of the victory. They didn't even have swords. Let's read about that. 
This is what God said to Gideon. Gideon, your army is too big. I can't let you win with this many soldiers. The Israelites would think that they'd won the battle all by themselves and that I didn't have anything to do with it. So God explicitly states his purpose here. It's not like it's a secret and we have to sort of interpret it. On the eve of battle, and the amazing thing is, right, Gideon's done the fleece stuff. He's had God prove to him several times who he is. But on the eve of battle, Gideon needed yet further persuasion. And so God placed a dream and its interpretation in the mouths of Midianite warriors in the camp who happened to be just where Gideon and his mate had snuck down to the camp. So Gideon could hear that the Midianites knew what God was going to do. And that finally gave Gideon enough courage and assurance that he would prevail. And so at last battle was entered. Gideon and his group reached the edge of the enemy camp a few hours after dark, just after the new guards had come on duty. Gideon and his soldiers blew their trumpets and smashed the clay jars that were hiding the torches. That's what they had, trumpets, clay jars, and torches. The rest of Gideon's soldiers blew the trumpets they were holding in their right hands. Then they smashed the jars and held the burning torches in their left hands. Everyone shouted, Fight with your swords for the Lord and for Gideon, which is a funny thing to say because they didn't have swords. <laughs> <laughs> the enemy soldiers started yelling and tried to run away. Gideon's troops stayed in their positions surrounding the camp and blew their trumpets again. Sorry. As they did, the Lord made the enemy soldiers pull out their swords and start fighting each other. So that's how it worked. They didn't need the swords for the Israelites because the enemy soldiers started fighting each other. The enemy soldiers started yelling and tried to run away. Gideon's troops stayed in their position surrounding the camp and blew their trumpets again. As they did, the Lord made the enemy soldiers pull out their swords. Oh, sorry, I've read this mm-hmm. one. The enemy soldiers made the, the Lord made the enemy soldiers pull out their swords and start fighting each other. The enemy army tried to escape from the camp. They ran to Acacia Tree Town towards Zereda, and as far as the edge of the land that belonged to the town of Abel Meholah near Tabah. So, <clears throat> this extraordinary rout of the enemy seems to have finally persuaded Gideon that God was on the side of the Israelites. And so, now actually having some courage, Gideon took matters into his own hands. He called out the rest of the Israelite army to pursue the Midianites. And this yellow line here is, is his pursuit of them. Um, I think that. And, um, <clears throat> and then when some Israelites obstructed him in his pursuit, so on the way um, some men obstructed him, and when he came back, full of his triumph, he murdered them. He whipped some of them with, with thorn bushes and he murdered some of them. From that point on, it was just all downhill for Gideon. He made an idol and he spent the rest of his life leading Israel away from God. So this is where it tells us that Gideon returned to his home in Ophrah and had the gold made into a statue. 
which the Israelites soon started worshipping. They became unfaithful to God, and even Gideon and his family were trapped into worshipping the statue. The Midianites had been defeated so badly that they were no longer strong enough to attack Israel. And so Israel was at peace for the remaining 40 years of Gideon's life. Why would Gideon do that? Because he must have known that, that, that the, the, they told him the law and the Ten Commandments not to be worshipping idols. So after the victory, God had been so faithful and giving them that amazing victory without, as you said, without them having swords. Why would they do something so stupid? Exactly. My next line is, why did Gideon go so wrong? <laughs> so that's the than, natural question. He was more than just a cow. He had to have mentally unstable in some way. Yeah. Do you think, though, maybe maybe they, they had, he didn't have the Ten Commandments. Maybe they just, they weren't reading the Torah yeah, and they weren't yeah. keeping track of it. Mm. Yeah. They were Canaanized. They were very yeah. strong, they Canaanized. And... So let's let's think about what we see of his attitude toward God. So how many years are yeah, sorry, I'm not American. So forty more years he he was Yeah, I'm gonna think of how far back before the since Moses. About two or three hundred years. Ah uh, yeah, the judges are yeah, three three hundred years to six hundred years after Moses, yeah. Oh, sorry, no, it's yeah. No, it's only it's only a hundred or so years because yeah, after Moses. It's, it's hard to tell with... Judges is not in chronological order. So so um, Samson, for example, actually is earlier than, than some of these stories. And we know that because of where Dan happens to be at the time. And Samson is a, is a part of the tribal family. So, so <clears throat> if we look at what Gideon did... We can ask ourselves a question, a simple question, right? When did Gideon seek God? Right? That's a characteristic of, for example, King David, seeking God. Um, when did Gideon do that? In fact, there's only one time. Now, I didn't read out all the Bible, so you'll have to take my word for this or, or check me up afterwards. You can, in fact, do that. Have a read of Judges afterwards. Um, but there's only one time in this whole tragedy that... Anyone sought God or asked God anything, and that was when Gideon had doubts about going into battle. But rather than asking clarifying questions or seeking reassurance, Gideon arrogantly demanded that God prove his command over nature by keeping a place wet or dry. So, so Gideon's approach, even when he approached God, the rest of the time God was approaching him. The only time that Gideon actually sought out God, he just wanted to test God. He wanted God to prove to him that he had power of nature. Now let me be perfectly clear. I don't know if you grew up with this idea of a fleece as a way to determine God's will. I did. This was sort of, that was the attitude back then. Let me be perfectly clear, this is not a good model for Christians to follow. Gideon didn't lay out his fleece for clarification, as I said. He didn't lay it out to find out a direction. He wasn't really interested in what God wanted. His only question for God was, can I trust you? God had already told him exactly what he wanted him to 
to do. And Gideon was just doubting that God had the power to do what he told Gideon. Is that a model we want to be following? I don't think it is. You see, Gideon never actually aligned his desires or goals with God's. Gideon's mind and heart were steadfastly his own, and he obeyed God, I think, when it suited his own purposes, and he ignored him otherwise. I mean, Gideon benefited from the, the, um, the Midianites being removed from Israel, right? Just like everyone else. In fact, Gideon benefited more because he was the leader, and so he became almost a king. I don't know if you've talked to many atheists or self-proclaimed skeptics, but uh, if you talk to them about God, they'll tell you, and you say, what would you ask God? What do you want to know from God? They'll tell you their primary demand of God is, prove that you exist. I don't know about you, but I find this a bewildering demand. I mean, atheists... Atheists, like all of us, are surrounded by proof. In fact, their own existence is proof of God's existence. Yet they shake their fist at God and and demand that he prove his reality. Their perspective is, is actually too narrow to comprehend reality, I think. Uh, They refuse to recognise the miraculous fine balancing of the universe, the the extraordinary design of the DNA in every living creature, the the stunning complexity and robustness of the Earth's ecosystems. Blinded to this by fantasies about blind chance in deep time, they can't see God. What would happen if they were honest about these things? If they grappled with things like the existence of objective morality or or the reality of logic and its independence from matter. Where does that come from? Doubt would be much harder to maintain. And honest sceptics eventually come to the point where they have to give it up. And yet, yet we we can say this, and yet how treacherous is our own hold on this larger reality of God and his creation. How often do we get distracted by, I don't know, the latest Netflix show, the rising price of food, uh, federal election, our latest work project, our child's emotional struggles, our relationship stuff-ups, or any of the thousands of distractions the world throws our way each day. The struggle to trust God, to, to align our hearts and minds with his, is common to all humanity. It's not just Gideon's problem. And it's not just contemporary atheists either. We actually see it in the Bible in many places. One of the most beautiful reflections of this struggle is in uh, one of the most beautiful psalms of Asaph, Psalm 73. Here, Asaph describes how he almost lost faith because he was distracted by the apparently wonderful lives of the wicked. So let's have a look at that psalm. Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, 
to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the crowd. When I saw them prosper despite their wickedness, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. Didn't think the psalm could be so relevant and contemporary, right? Have you ever felt like this? I certainly have. Have you ever struggled with the burden of your faith as you look with envy at those around you whose lives seem so effortless and joyful and yet they don't recognise God? What's the point of bearing your cross each day and those who ignore Christ can be carefree and enjoy life? The ASAP, ASAP actually, sorry, ASAP does um, does have an answer for this. Let's see how he handles this. He asks himself, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So, I try to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then, I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person who laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realised that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish. <coughs> you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. And I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Isn't that beautiful? Asaph 
managed to grasp the big picture and he clung to that. And that saved him and brought him back into relationship with God. That realigned him with God. But what was his turning point? What was it that helped him come back to God and, and, and to God's big picture of view of reality? I think the turning point in this psalm is verse 17. It's probably the middle. The middle. I didn't count the words in the Hebrew or something, but it's probably right in the middle. That's how Hebrew psalmists like to do things. He says, Then I went into your sanctuary, your Lord, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. He went into God's sanctuary. He sought out God in God's house. He went to spend time in God's presence. We too need to spend time in God's sanctuary. Whether that be time in prayer, in reading his word, here in church, in immersing yourself in his nature, or in communing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me explain with an analogy. When you put your car in for a service, you may have noticed that every so often it comes back having had a wheel alignment. Has anyone noticed that? Yep. yep. Why does your car near, need a wheel alignment? Don't car manufacturers know how to make cars with aligned wheels? Yes, That's right. <laughs> The reality is, in order for you to survive driving at insane speeds, like more than 40 kilometres an hour, your car has this technology called suspension, which irons out bumps in the road. If you've ever driven in something without suspension, you'll know how necessary that is. But over time, the bumps and curves and occasional collisions with the curve that we subject our cars to bend the suspension and the wheels need to be realigned so that they can perform correctly. You can see what happens if they're not aligned. If you fail to realign your wheels, your car could eventually become dangerous and even undrivable. Notice that this diagram shows that there is a correct alignment. This correct alignment is defined by the manufacturer, not by your decision on what is correct. <laughs> and the Christian life's the same. We need regular alignment by and to God in order to keep us connecting correctly with reality, especially with that largest part of reality that is God himself. The knocks and bumps of this broken world will throw us out of alignment with God. <coughs> And so if we come back to him and submit to his gentle but sometimes painful realignment, if we don't do that, if we don't come back and submit to that realignment, we'll end up like Gideon. Actually, how did Gideon end up? I haven't told the end of the story yet. If you read on in Judges, you'll find out that Gideon had 70 sons, obviously not with one wife. Um, that was with a bunch of Israelite wives. And he had one son, Abimelech, with a Canaanite woman from Shechem. Shechem's actually where the, uh, the, um, the Samaritan woman at the well comes from. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of uh, impressive things that happen in Shechem. 
Um, in a story of Shakespearean tragedy, and you should read this as well, uh, Abimelech slaughters his 70 brothers in order to become, on one stone, in order to become king of Shechem and hopefully all of Israel. But he is then betrayed by the leaders of Shechem. We think he's getting above himself. And it all ends terribly. Abimelech turns against them. They all retreat into this tower. Abimelech sets the tower on fire so they all die. Uh, but as he's doing that, a woman throws a millstone out of the tower and crushes his head. And so Abimelech asks his armor bearer to kill him so he isn't killed by a woman. So, as I said, Shakespeare. Is Gideon alive when all that happens? No, this is after Gideon has died. Yep. So everyone's dead at the end of this story. <laughs> it's like Hamlet. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happens when your alignment gets really bad. So let's keep booking in for service. Eh? Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are pure and that you've given us new hearts through our Lord Jesus. Please refresh our hearts and continue to purify us and align us with your loving purposes. Lord, we yearn for the peace that your love brings and for the joy, the joy of salvation. And yet we're often torn by the temptations of the world. Protect us from temptation. Lead us away from evil. Guide us in your ways and bring us home to you. In Jesus' name.